Well, this whole week we're going to be uh, telling stories to the, uh, the children and uh, teaching about God's Word. In many ways, I almost don't like to use the word story as it relates to the Bible because sometimes uh, when we think of stories, we think of the things that you're telling people that aren't exactly what? True. And as we think about the stories or events in the Bible, we want to make sure everybody knows it's not just things that will give us morals for life or give us things that we ought to think about, but it's really something that really happened and it made a difference in their lives. And as we think about that, we ought to make a difference in our life. One of the stories in the Bible that a lot of people think is simply a story is the story of Noah. Knowing the ark and all the animals and the flood and everything else. And some of the things as we go through this series, we want you to understand that this is not just, again, a story for us to hear about and to think about how that applies to our life, but this actually happened and that God is the author of history. It's not just history, it's his story. And so I want to show you a, a quick, uh, um, that's a fact, um, little clip as far as emphasizing how it really could have happened in a time frame in which God portrays it in the Word of God. Walk into any natural history museum and you're likely to see an enormous T-Rex skeleton staring you in the face. Of course, unlike Hollywood movies like Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs we see today are just fossils. Paleontologists dig up all kinds of fossils, mostly just small bones or seashells. But occasionally, they discover unusual fossils like squid with ink, lizards with skin, or even a T-Rex with blood. That's what scientists uncovered in Montana in 1990. Bones with soft blood vessels inside. And when they examined the blood vessels in the lab, they found dinosaur blood cells. Other discoveries around the world include fossils with hair, feathers, and even skin, which makes a paleontologist scratch his head because things like skin and blood can only last thousands of years. And what about that squid fossil? In 2009, scientists found a dried ink sac inside. When they made the ink wet, they were actually able to write with it. A lot of scientists insist that dinosaur fossils are many millions of years old. But the facts of science tell a different story. That squid with ink and lizards with skin and dinosaurs with gooey blood vessels can only have been buried a short time. Which is exactly what the Bible has said all along. Because God created all living things, including man, just a few thousand years ago. Even that enormous T-Rex at the museum. People often ask me, as well as other people who really believe the Bible, you know, where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? Uh, when were they made and created? And I really believe the Bible would portray that. They, they were created when um, that same week when God created everything else. And that dinosaurs and man cohabited together, and it was evolved there, and God uh, allowed Noah to put, that on the, put them on the, in the flood. And God is the author of time. And we're going to look at some things this morning that will probably put it somewhat in a setting, hopefully, that you can understand how this is laid out in God's word for us to understand his plan and his um, bringing things all to pass. But before we do that, let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time. Before we look in his word, uh, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this day in which we have opportunity to examine your word. And as we think about it being true, it also has um, profound impact as far as what we believe, uh, but also uh, how we live. And Father, I would just pray as we uh, listen to the warnings from your word, that we might uh, take them to heart and then apply uh, the principles to our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have an experience, you got caught doing something, and as you look back at that experience, you say, well, you know, if someone had just warned me, I wouldn't have done what I did. And I've had that experience many times. Uh, sometimes 
It, it was because uh, there were warnings out there and I just didn't pay attention. Other times, uh, I, I really felt that I wasn't properly alerted to the fact that if I did this, I would get a consequence. And one of the things that happened to me is when I was going to seminary a number of years ago, and for three years I parked in the same place, uh, being rather cheap and all that kind of stuff. I didn't buy a parking spat pass. I, bought a place, I, I found a place where you could park for free. Well, I did that for three years, and I would pull up that one spot. Everybody else, quite frankly, didn't notice it was there, and so I was parking all the time. Well, then one particular day I was, I was at seminary or class. I came back, and there was this little paper on my windshield. You ever had one of those things? And it was a parking tick, ticket. And in those days, I, I even kind of embarrassed to tell you how much that parking ticket was. I think it was between 5 and $15. It was really an expensive parking ticket. But for some reason, that just ticked me off, all right? And so I began, well, how come I got this ticket? No one warned me. And then I looked around, and I found that there was a sign, but there was a sign hidden by a tree. And so I went out there, and I took pictures of that, that, uh, that tree and that sign, and I went down for three weeks arguing my case. And finally, finally, they, 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 uh, they bent their knee to my superior logic, and I got back $15. But you know what happens in life, if, if, we know we're, if we experience a consequence and for some reason we felt that we weren't alerted or warned, it just digs deeper. And it really not only questions the fairness of the consequence, it really speaks to the person who applied the consequence. You know, my government is whatever, or whatever, the police force is this. But as we think about things we experience in life, Often when things go wrong, we, we look around for a human person to blame, but eventually we'll look up and we begin to blame God. And whether that's our own experience of consequences or it's someone else we care about or, or people in, in, out there in, in God's land, and we think, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Why does God do, that, do what he does? And even as we look back in God's word, sometimes we think, man, God was a kind of a... Uh, a judgmental, harsh, mean-spirited, supreme being on this planet to do the things he did to people who didn't seem to walk the line or walk, walk down the path that he had laid out for them. And if you have any heart, when you think back at the flood, and we're going to be seeing more details about that in the weeks to come, you're thinking, man, that, that, was, that was pretty over the top here. I mean, didn't he, couldn't he do something to persuade them to come back to him? We won't go through some of the rationales for this, but at the time in which Noah was called to build the ark, uh, rumor has it there wasn't just a few people on this planet. There were, there were possibly more people on, on this planet uh, then than there is now. The estimates is that there were over 7 billion people on the planet in which God sent the flood to bring judgment on this land. And again, if you have any compassion, you're thinking, did, did God send any warnings for that? And, and then as you look at your own life, and we're going to see some practical points for you this, this day as well. Does God give any warnings to me when I seem to look at his commandments and think, well, you know, I know that's what God wants me to do, but if I kind of do my own thing, it's, it's not that big a deal. Does God give adequate warnings for us as we think about living our life here on this planet to living it out to its fullness and understanding how God's love and grace should be applied to our lives. And, and when we seem to go down our own path, and the Bible says that there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? Death or destruction. That God doesn't want us to go down that path. God doesn't delight in bringing judgment or punishment. 
But it is the natural consequence of breaking his commandments. And then his hand will come upon those who, who just hear him and just seem to go down the other, other direction. So you have your Bibles this morning. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. That we'll begin a little bit at Genesis chapter 5 as we look at the warnings. Well, how, how did God warn the people that day? And we're going to look at a few things, uh, hopefully, that will bring us into context this morning. Uh, first of all, he, he warned them through, through individuals. And in some ways, sometimes he did that rather creatively. Uh, first of all, we see the warning from Methuselah. Now, Methuselah is that man you need to know if you ever get on Jeopardy and they have the, the answer is, who is the, uh, the, old, uh, the, the, oldest, uh, the oldest man in the Bible? And then you write on the question, who is Methuselah? And if they ask the other question... Um, the oldest man in the Bible lived how long? And then you need to, how, how many is 969 years? And as we look at God's um, unveiling of life here on planet, and people lived a lot longer here because before the flood came, the, the environment was so much different than uh, what we have now. But there was a man who grew to an age much longer than anyone who ever lived on this planet, or at least longer. Genesis chapter 5, verse 27 says this. Uh, so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he, what, died. And we looked at that last week as we looked at the graveyard chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 5, as we see the reality of both life and death. And Enoch, his, his father, was the one who was the symbol of God presenting life in the midst of a context of many people dying. In fact, Enoch was a man who walked with God, and he took a walk with God, and I was talking to some of our seniors this past week, and they're saying, you know, sometimes when I take a walk, I, I get a, ner- a little nervous because I might walk too far. Or was that Pam? Was that Pam Aldrich who said that to me? You know, she said, I don't, I don't want to go out there and walk too far because I might not have enough energy to get back. Well, God was gracious not only to Enoch, but also to Pam. If that ever happens, Pam, he'll just take you up. He'll beam me up, Scott, and you'll go directly into heaven. Uh, and that's what happened to Enoch. Enoch took a walk with God. He said, hey, you don't, go, don't worry about going back to your, your place. I'll just bring you up to my place, to heaven. And so in the context of death, he also offered life. And, and man uh, receives life when we walk with God or in favor with God. But as we looked at the planet, and we're going to see this particularly portrayed very clearly in descriptions in Genesis chapter 6, mankind, the population at large, began to rebel against God, to go their own way. And it was the exception rather than the rule that people believed in God, trusted in God, and and pled for his mercy upon their lives. They were doing their own thing. Enoch was an exception. And so as God began to see this, he he said, I I need to warn them that if they keep going down that direction, if they keep going down that path, there will be judgment on their life. The Bible says in the New Testament, for the wage of sin is what? Death. And and so God began to warn them. Now, how did he warn them? Well, a couple ways he warned them. One is even in Methuselah's name. Now, this is somewhat controversial for those who are familiar with the Hebrew language and maybe have read a variety of people who comment on this passage. But Methuselah's name is an interesting one. It means a couple things. It either means when he dies, it shall come, or man sins spear. Now, man sins spear doesn't do anything for you. But if it says, when he dies, it shall come, it becomes very interesting. And I could go through the Hebrew for you. There's a possibility that Methuselah either means man and a spear or a missile dart, or it can have the idea of muth, which has the idea of death, and then shalak, part of the, the Methuselah, Methuselah, has the idea of sending forth. So it's death, send forth. And if you do a variety of things, you can get that word to mean when he dies, it shall, uh, it shall come. And, and what is it that would come? What would come is that judgment would come. And if you take um, 
Methuselah's life, and I put a, a timeline here. If, if you look at the genealogies of the Old Testament in a strict way, you can look at, and there's some various ways to maybe one or two or three, four, eight, five, ten years differently, is that you have Adam being born 4,113 years before the time of Christ. Noah was born 3,057. Methuselah um, uh, died at 2,457. And interesting enough, on the, in the year that he died, when he dies, it shall come. Guess what came? The flood. Now, what I want to throw out as a possibility here, and there is, again, great debate about what his name really means, and I tried to do my own research on this past week because I, I would hear various authors debate this. But let's assume they had some implication that when his life would end, uh, that the judgment would come. This speaks about God warning in the most gracious way. If you were to make a prophecy that when a particular child were to die, then the hammer would, would, uh, would fall, you would hope that that child would live a long time, right? I mean, how gracious would it be? Well, um, when that child dies and is going to die in the crib or is going to die as a child or is going to die as a teenager, then that gracious warning would last a few years, some, maybe a decade, maybe a few more years past that. But, but think of the, the graciousness of God. He, he took the man that lived longer than anybody else, 969 years. And he was trying to tell everybody, when you see Methuselah, it should remind you that judgment's coming. And you better hope he lives a little bit longer. In fact, as you think about him living a little bit longer, you need to recognize that today is the day of salvation. You know what, what, what grieves me more than anything else when I talk to someone who, who have, has heard the message of Christ over and over and over again? In fact, if you pursue the conversation in any length, and ask them, do you really believe this is true? And they say, yes, I believe it's true. Well, then why don't you surrender your life to Christ? And they say, well, I'm going to do it when? Later. When I get a little bit older. When, I, when I've experienced life a little bit fuller. Well, they miss the beat in two different ways. One is they don't recognize that God is so good that your, your life is better when you experience life with Him now. But the most dangerous thing is you never know when your last day is here. And they didn't know, as they saw Methuselah again, older and older, when his last day would be. And so many people put it off so long that they, they miss that point where they can center their life to Christ. But God, so gracious, for 969 years, he kept warning them, judgment is coming. When he dies, it shall come. But, but let's say you're not even sure about that. Was there any other warnings? Well, it's interesting. Even as you look at Enoch's dad, which was Enoch, uh, Methuselah's dad, uh, he warned of judgment coming. In Jude chapter 14, Jude, Jude verses 14 and 15. There's only one chapter in Jude. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Kind of the description here is there are a lot of people who were what? Ungodly. 
And Enoch kept preaching this over and over and over again. <laughs> you need to understand that judgment is coming for everyone who is ungodly. Take a look in the mirror. What's, what's wrong with this life on this planet? And so often we need to say, hey, it begins with me, doesn't it? You know, what is it I'm adding to, to people's heartache and pain? And see, as, as we've often said here, it, it, just, just your attendance in a place like this is saying that you... you you get the principle. Everyone who, who comes to a church needs to recognize that we're saying this is not something that might be a good option. This is something we desperately all need. We need God's mercy. We need God's grace. The Bible says that we've all fallen short of that mark, that standard. There's no one righteous. There's no one seeks after good. We need someone to cover us, to rescue us. And really, that's the story of Noah. It's not just a cute story. It's a story of God's grace rescuing those who found favor and grace in him from the judgment that was to come as they looked at in the future. And and even as Enoch is probably preaching this, he's talking about looking ahead to that that future final judgment that is to come. And, And the reason that God has given his revelation in his word The reason he has had preachers down through the centuries, and not just professional preachers, every child of God, is to bring people not only warning, but good news. You know, when someone gives a warning, if someone had told me, hey, uh, you know, don't park here, that's telling me something that could go wrong, you know, if I park there. Uh, The other part of the added, you know, if you park over here, you won't get a ticket. You know, that's the good news. And that's what God is saying. You you can escape. God warns us so we might not fall down that path that leads to destruction. Later on, we'll see this as, as we think about the life of Noah. Noah preached for 120 years as he built that boat, that ark, that barge pleading with people to respond to him. Uh, Warning not only from Methuselah, not only his name, but also his dad. He also warning from spiritual pollution. Uh, Look at, now we'll get into Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. And again, as you look at that, uh, the period between Adam's birth and the flood, Noah being born and then um, having his sons when he was age 500, or at least those three sons, and then 100 years later, uh, the flood coming, he had finished the ark, is that is, if you count kind of real, uh, real strict or tight genealogy, you have uh, 1,656 years. And you're thinking, 1,656 years? Well, you know, if you started with only Adam and Eve, and their first child had a sudden death, Okay, one of their, well, one of their two children had a sudden death, Cain and Abel. You know, wouldn't it take a long time to get there? Well, you need to remember, you know, they didn't die when they were 70 and 80 and 90. They were living in their 700s and 800s and 900s. Uh, they had quite a few children. In fact, even if you look at our population, in terms of, I think it is in the 18th century, there was basically 1 billion people who lived in the world. Well, between the 18th century and now, there's about 6.8 billion in a couple 200 years. Once you start multiplying and you have multiple births and they have multiple births, you can have a lot of people born on this planet. And they began to multiply. 
And as more people came in who were ungodly, this ungodliness multiplied as well. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the daughters were born of them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Genesis, and you're all familiar with this particular portion, you recognize this is a debated, another debated passage. Who are these sons of God who saw the daughters of men? And if you kind of just go over it, well, that's just a kind of fancy way or a nice way to say about the, the, the male race. You know, what are we? We are sons of God, you know. And it's all the daughters of men, you know. It's kind of like, well, the, the men are kind of like God and the daughters are kind of like, you know, little men, you know. Uh, and so the wrestle is, well, what is he saying here? And again, as we look a little bit later on in the text, they wrestle with that. Is that... Uh, there are basically two options. And what I want to do today, because I couldn't choose which option I really believed, uh, actually I have, a, tendency, I have a, a leaning toward one. There are two main interpretations of this passage. One is, is he's using sons of God in kind of a generic way. Just like in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Uh, well... And so they say, this is, this is just a glorious way to talk about men. And they say, probably the men here are the sons of Seth. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that as we go through life, we have an option. We can decide to leave a legacy. And that legacy can either be a godly legacy or the opposite of that would be a... Come on, class, I can start all over. One is a godly legacy and the other would be a ungodly legacy. That's a, that's a choice we make. And we, we choose that not because we think that we can be perfect or more spiritual than somebody else, but a godly legacy is a person who simply governs or directs their life toward God, and an ungodly leg, legacy could care less what God thinks and, and, and believes and wants. And so the line of Seth went one way, and then the line of Canaan went the other way. And so what some interpreters look at this, and this is a rather recent interpretation, is that the, the sons of God here is the lines of the son of Seth, the godly line. And, and what they did is like a lot of men in this world do, is they looked for the, their life partner. They're looking uh, on a physical dimension. They say, oh, there's some beautiful women over there. And I really don't care what's their character or what their heart is. As long as they're beautiful on the outside, then that's the kind of gal I want. And so the sons of Seth got tempted by those daughters of men because of how beautiful they were, and they chose to marry outside uh, their spiritual line or their spiritual legacy. And that's what I, I put in your notes. Sons of God are the sons of Seth who polluted the godly uh, life by marrying into an ungodly line. And if we take this interpretation, then there is a very direct practical principle for not only us, depending upon where we are in the, the line of being single or married, and it, it, is a, it is a blessing to be either single or married. It's not, you are not somehow deficient if you are single, or you are more spiritual if you are married. But, but depending upon if you're out there on the hunt, okay, you know, what, what should you be aware of that is very important to God? It gets down to, again, the beginning, that God says we have a choice. What kind of legacy we want to leave? Do we want to live, leave a godly legacy or a what? ungodly legacy well it really begins here it is who do you join your heart and your life to in second in second Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 and 15 it says this do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what he is saying for those who who have identified themselves with Christ, who surrendered their their lives to him, the most important uh, quality, the most important thing that you're looking at for a life partner is is their spiritual life. Do they love Jesus Christ as much as you? And it's more than simply making a, a superficial profession. If your life is committed to Christ more than anyone else uh, on this planet, that He is the Lord of your life, He is the passion of your life, you want to please Him more than anyone else, then when you look for a life partner, that is the major quality to look for. Otherwise, when you get married, you're going to be in all, moving in all kinds of directions with all kinds of competing values and what really is important to you, and not only to you, but if you have children, to them as well. And as, as God lays this out in the very beginning, in Genesis, the book of beginnings, he uses this as an illustration. What happened then in which sin multiplied, that one of the factors in that is that those who in the godly line chose to break away from the godly line and marry into the ungodly line. And let's be honest, women can influence who? Men. And it works the opposite way as well. And so, as we think about that, we, there's a warning from spiritual pollution. It was from the very beginning as well. But just, just for free here, I want to say this. As we think of this side of the cross, I don't think God really supports missionary dating. Well, I want to, I want to, I want to date that person because I want to lead in the Lord. Well, uh, pray for them. And, uh, introduce them to people of the same gender. Uh, invite them to things. But don't get tied up into missionary dating because things can go really wrong really fast there. But what happens if you make a commitment to a person who doesn't know the Lord? Well, God didn't see, say run from that. In fact, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, it says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, though he's just saying Jesus didn't say specific things about it, but I've been inspired by God to say it. If any brother has a wife, and you could reverse it, if any wife has a, um, um, if, any, if any sister in the Lord has a a husband who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So as, as God brings you into relationship with someone, then you can say very definitively, the person you are married to is the person God wants you to stay with. And, and then do everything you can to influence them in the Lord. And, and God can still bless that union. God can still bless that relationship. And God wants you to love them as Christ loves them. And, and they are not a lesser person. But before you make that decision, understand this is an important decision to make. And the most important quality is to find someone who loves the Lord as much as you do. And if you want to find someone who really loves the Lord, then you better make sure you love the Lord a lot as well. Because they might turn you down and say, wow, I really like you, but you don't love the Lord as much as I do. And so in the very beginning, as we think about God warning, he warned the people that day, you better, better examine your life. And one, let me just do it creatively with the, with the name of the, of the oldest person who lived on this planet, Methuselah. When death comes, when, death, when he dies, it shall come. And if you can't remember that, remember all the preaching of his dad, Enoch, who kept talking about if you, if you live in an ungodly way, then God will bring his judgment. But also recognize that spiritual pollution is an object lesson to, to things that bad things happen when we break God's commandments. 
But there's another way to look at this passage, and that is that the sons of God refer not to, to mankind, and particularly the male, it refers to angels or demons. And what happened in that time is you need to realize that as we think about our story, there's, a, there's another story going, going on as well. There is spiritual warfare. If you want to look at a, really a, a major chapter on that, look at Ephesians chapter 6 where, where Paul talks about that we, 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 our battle is not against things that are just flesh and blood, but, but things that are unseen. That there, there is a, there's a force out there that's trying to draw us away from God rather than to God. And that has always been the case, and there's a variety of ways that, that uh, Satan and his, his angelic host, uh, demonic host, have tried to do that. And, and back then, one of the ways that, that uh, God allowed uh, Satan to do was to, to try to infiltrate humankind. And, and so what you have here is, is, is these sons of God are, are demons or angels. Now, one of the reasons that that is a... A significant view, in fact, probably the one I lean toward, is that as you look at the Hebrew, ben Elohim, and you look at the ways it's been used in the Old Testament, it's always been used in the Old Testament for angels or, or angelic hosts. If you look at 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2, and you look at Jude, it, it appears that these New Testament authors are declaring what happened to these particular uh, fallen angels who did this uh, in Noah's day, and the judgment God gave upon them. And, and before we look at particularly the passage in Second Peter chapter two, verses four and five, is that we need to recognize that this this is a war that we're living in when we try to live for God. That we need to be alert to the battleground in which we are facing on a on a daily basis. In Second Peter chapter two, verses four and five, it says this: For if God did not spare the angels who sinned. And we'll be looking. Uh, that's what we read in here. But cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness to res- be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but save Noah. So you get that same context here in Noah's day. One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And then it goes on in that chapter to say, what makes you think that God would not bring judgment on those who sin today? And so, again, God brings a judgment on those who don't heed the warnings. Now, so what happened here? If you take this, the sons of God, as being fallen angels, what the fallen angels did is say, we're going to mess with God's plan. God had promised that there was going to be a godly line. Now that godly line would become the Savior, and and God would cover all the sins of the world through that that one who who would be wounded by Satan, but he would crush Satan's head. Uh, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll mess up that line. And, and so the angels, the demonic force, came in, and they, what they did is that they, they, they found men who were open to evil things, and they possessed them. And as these angels possessed these men, they went in and then found beautiful women who liked powerful men and entered into relationships and birthed an evil, evil line. Now, if it's the sons of Seth, the illustration here is that, again, which is found in other places in Scripture, that we need to choose who we are going to partner with. And it ought to be people who love Jesus as much as we do. If it's the sons of God being demonic forces here, then, and we're running through this really quickly, is that we need to recognize that 
there's a dangerous world we're living in. There's a spiritual warfare going on all the time. And the Bible says that we are to resist. And James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, that's a pretty awesome promise. That if we're connected with God, that we don't have to fear the enemy. We can respect the enemy, but we don't have to live in fear. That God, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We don't have to you know, worry about black cats you know, walking in front of us or going through ladders unless there's someone on the ladder. I was seeing John the other day, and he was, he was getting up on a ladder, and he was saying, you know, don't do this at home. You know how you're not supposed to stand on the top of the ladder? You know where it says, do not ever step here? Well, you know, if someone's on the top of the ladder, I wouldn't invite you to go through it. But, you know, you don't have to worry about superstitious things. But you do need to recognize that behind temptation, behind going down a path in which is going to be self-destructive, some things that God has been clear about. Recognize that you're not only just resisting the, the personage, the humankind that might be tempting you to go down a path. There's an evil one who's trying to destroy you as well. And, and we want to resist the devil because we don't let, want to let the, the devil have any kind of foothold in our life. Have you ever done things or seen things? This is even talk about the visual. You've seen some things, you go, oh man, I... I shouldn't be looking at that. And then you kind of look again, and this is the whole, whole allurement of pornography. You, you begin, to, begin to look at that. You, you look, have some visual things, and, and all of a sudden it just drags you. And it's so hard to get that out of your mind. And, and what you want to do more than anything else is don't let it get in your mind in the first place. Now, some, some of it, because we have so many visual things around all the time, but just don't go down that path because what... What the evil one does, he takes that and just magnifies it. In fact, let me just tell you, if you have a, if you have a problem in your thought life, and this is the battleground for all of us, but in, and they're in various areas, but when you're struggling in an area in your thought life, the best thing you can do is memorize Scripture and then make it a covenant with your own heart that when that thought becomes into your mind. It, could be, it can be a, a thought in which you're, you're condemning yourself. Oh, I'm worthless. You know, my life doesn't matter or anything. I, I've messed up so much, so you know, why, why should I even try now? Or uh, I, God doesn't love me. Or, or my, the, my, no, there's no one who cares about me. There's no one in there. I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I don't have, you know, whatever. And most of those are just lies. If you, you know, I don't have any talents. I don't have any abilities. I don't, you know, I don't have any strengths. I'm, I'm ugly. Whatever. I don't care what it is, okay? is memorize scripture. And then every time that thought comes, then just quote that verse. Uh, there were, I, won't go, I don't have time to go down that path. Oh, I don't have any time to go down that path. Uh, there have been periods of my time where I, I have had to quote scripture like nonstop through a day. Because for whatever reason, the battleground would just hit me. And if I didn't have something to, to change my thought processes, I, I'd just be drifting down an area which was no good for me. You know, scripture memory is not to just impress your pastor. Oh, you know, verses like the pastor. No, it's about, it's about being able to cleanse your mind. I've I got to tell you a story. I've, I tell it all the time in one of my small groups. But, you know, what's so good about memorizing scripture 
this, this isn't my downloaded notes from my sermon, Pansy, okay, is that, you know, many people struggle about scripture memory because, well, you know, I memorize the scripture and then I do what with it? I forget it, right? Okay, Megan is honest, one honest person over here. I memorize a verse and I forget it, all right? Well, if you forget verses, don't, you know, don't beat yourself up on that because this, the practice of, of memorizing scripture will just cleanse you. You know, the Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And, and you know, I'll tell people, memorizing scripture is like having a bucket. You know, you keep putting verses in your bucket, and the more verses you got, your bucket begins to fill out. But you say, my problem is I put verses in my bucket, but there's a hole in my bucket, and they all go out. Have you ever had that experience? Well, it's like having a bucket with a hole in it and pouring water in it. And what happens if you pour water in a bucket with a hole in it? All the water what? Goes out. But there's one thing true about that bucket. You've got the cleanest bucket in town, right? Because you keep pouring water in it. And that's what happened in your own life. Keep memorizing, spending time in God's Word. Hide it in your heart. And what happened in that day is there were people who allowed a foothold in their life. And let me tell you, God judged not only the angels, but He judged mankind because they allowed the demonic forces. They didn't resist the devil, and He did not flee. So warnings from God. Number one, he warned very creatively with, with Methuselah and his dad preaching. He warned through spiritual pollution. All I had to look around and say, man, this world's getting kind of, oh man, do I want to bring people into this world? We see that at times. Man, what a world we're living in. Uh, did you hear that? I mean, this is for free too. Is that, you know what our country now is doing? I mentioned that to a couple of people just recently. Is that uh, in our executive branch today, they have now approved that Abortion, one of the re- rationales for abortion or the reasons you choose to have abortion is because the mother does not particularly like the sex of the child. I wanted a, uh, a daughter and it's a male, so I'm going to abort it. Or I wanted a male and it's a girl, and so I'm going to abort it. That's, that's the world we're living here in America now. And, and when you see spiritual pollution... Realize judgment is coming. Should we be that surprised that our economy is the way it is? Should we be surprised? I mean, God says, okay, I, I won't do it. I'll just relieve my hand from you. And, and we are getting what we deserve in many ways. Now, God might be gracious, and we might be able to come out of some of the, what we're going into, but we deserve a lot what we get. In fact, we probably deserve a lot more than we're getting. There's some horacious hor- things happening in our society today. What do I do in three minutes? All right. Uh, quickly. <laughs> There's also a warning from testing God's patience. Uh, turn here, uh, let me read verses 3 and 4 and then look at a passage in Matthew. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And, and, and mo- you can take that a variety of different ways, but probably saying, look at, uh, they're going to be around physically uh, for a while. In fact, 120 years, I'll give them a little bit more to turn from their ways. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, then the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they were born children of them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men and renowned. And, and, and many mighty things were happening that day. And you probably ask me, who are the giants and all that? And I don't have time now to tell you about it. But, but there were a lot of things happening. 
And so as God was looking from his perspective, he says, man, everything's going wrong. And from their perspective, he said, man, a lot of things are going right, too. And that's true even in our There are things that are going well in America, and there are things that are going exactly horrific. And sometimes, well, you know, God hasn't put his hammer down on us yet, so why don't we just kind of do our own thing, keep doing what we're doing? Uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. When we test God's patience, thinking that it will always remain the same, we need to recognize that God said, look it, when you least expect it often, that's when it's going to happen. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. This is Jesus in the in uh, all of the discourse, talking about what's going to happen in the, in the future judgment. But as the days of Noah, he refers back to Noah, which is one of the reasons we believe Noah is more than just a story, because Jesus believed that story. Jesus referred back to it. But as the days of Noah were, so also the, will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And he did not... And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, what was happening? As, as Noah was building that boat, and, and John asked me this fact, did, he t- did it really take him 120 years to build that boat? And, and John, rightfully so, said, I don't think it would have taken me 120 years to build that boat. And I said, well, you know, Noah is, is considered a preacher of righteousness. So he would have been more like me. And let me tell you, it would have taken me longer than 120 years to build that boat. I mean, you know, well, I won't tell you what I can't build. But anyway, you know, it, it took him 120 years or, 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 or it took him a little bit longer. He took his time doing it, whatever it might have been. But, but 120 years before, again, judgment came. And yet they thought, well, you know, God's, God's patient. I can presume on his patience. They kept marrying. They kept do, living life like nothing had happened. And yet God was sending the red light, warning over and over and over again. And they would not listen. And then finally, warning, and this is kind of like that other point, from pervasive wickedness. It goes on, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the, heart, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. You know, I've heard parents sometimes say that about their children. And you know, a lot of times they wish they could take those words back. But, but sometimes it's, man, I, that child of mine, man, I, almost, I almost wish that I had... I never brought them into this world. Now, we should never say that about our children because every child is a gift of God. Every child is, it has immense worth. Every life that we run into has worth in God's eyes. But man's sin had gotten to the point when God, in an anthropomorphic way, which means in a, in a way that we can understand it, was, was so burdened by the wickedness that it grieved him to the point that he was, in a sense, going to start all over again. And how was he going to do that? Verse 8. But Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
as we look at a story like this, and this is true about anything, we, we all go off the wrong path. We've all made decisions that, that might, have, might have broken God's heart. Noah was not a perfect man, and we find that after, after the flood. But he found grace because his life was directed toward him. He, he, he had cried out for his mercy and for his grace. And as we'll see, the thing that marked Noah is that he did what God told him to do. And really, that's, that's what we ought to always do when there's a warning. Don't you get frustrated when you, when you drive on a, on a street and you want to turn right on a red light and, and then there's a sign that says, no right turn on red light? Man, I am tempted looking around. Can I go now? You know, you have to decide, am I going to do what that sign says or I'm going to look and just turn right on a red light? And that's what they were doing. They were, yeah, I see the red light, but I'm, I'm going to keep going down that path. I'll close with this. I, I don't know if this is one of the movies that Brandon has seen, but Kara Knightley, an actress. Okay, there's going to be a new movie out. What would you do if you knew the world was ending in a few days? That question gets raised in a new film called Seeking a Friend from the End of the World, starring Steve Carell and Kira Knightley. The film explores how people respond to the end of human existence as a 70-mile-wide asteroid hurtles toward the Earth. But when Knightley was asked how she would spend the last few days of her life, she said, we would eat a lot of cake. Cake! Lots of cake! We would sit and eat chocolate cake, eat until the world exploded. That's what a lot of people are doing today. They're just just living life in the midst of all the warnings God has. They're saying, look at Judgment has come and judgment will come. Are you, are you prepared? I, I want to give you grace. I want to give you mercy. I want to rescue you. And you're just eating cake. Lots of cake. And you're content. When the, the world explodes, I'll be eating what I want to eat. We all need, a, we all need to, to hear God's warnings. Not only it, and whether we really believe. And what a, what a challenging verse in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that, that Jesus Christ is in you, uh, unless, indeed, you fail the test? It's all going to come down to, are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in, in God's ark? that will bring us away from his judgment is your confidence fully and totally in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we chased some rabbits, kind of went a variety of different directions, but the message is clear in Noah's day, in our day as well, that, that, you, that you delight in, in rescuing those who... Will, found, will, will seek your grace and mercy. 
Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, we, we just really pray they might just see that, that your arms are stretched out to them and, and they want you to repent. He wants you to repent and, and turn to him. And Father, as we uh, live the life after coming to know you, might, might we be faithful to your warnings? Might we, as Noah did, be completely obedient in all that he was called to do and to be? Help us to trust you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.